Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, it looks like I was right once again. It gets a bit boring, this, doesn't it? I keep being right all the time. It's almost impossible to predict when I could possibly ever get anything wrong. The newspapers this morning are already talking about a faster path to freedom if the number of vaccinations exceeds expectations, which they are almost certainly bound to do. What did I tell you yesterday? Much to the chagrin of some of you, I was welcoming the roadmap to recovery set out by Boris Johnson because I said it was a step in the right direction. Some of you were dismissive because it wasn't going fast enough. Some of you were saying things like, Mike, How can you possibly ever betray us like this? Why are you not giving the Prime Minister a harder time? Well, I said the reason I wasn't doing that was because I actually firmly believe that this was the way out of this problem. And it might not look great at the moment. It might not look brilliant. It might not be everything you ever actually asked for. But we are indeed going somewhere where we want to end up. Now it looks exactly like that will happen, and probably sooner than you thought. This morning, we will be celebrating with Tory MP Deanna Davidson, plotting a day when the pubs will reopen, and she'll be telling us about a bill as well that she's pushing through Parliament uh, to do with the one-punch law, uh, which tragically affected her father himself. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we'll be speaking to Neil Oliver about the dreadful state of democracy in Scotland, where yesterday... And you'll have to pay attention to this. The former First Minister, Alex Salmon, had documents withdrawn from the submission to a parliamentary committee. And the current First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, asserted that he should make it all clear when he appears before that very same committee, which he now says he won't be doing. After first saying that he wouldn't do it, then saying that he would, now saying again that he won't. Again. Uh, also, we'll be catching up with Simon Calder, travel guru with The Independent, who will tell us why so many people are booking foreign holidays without knowing if they'll actually be able to go. 0344 499 Westminster is back, of course, so we'll be visiting Prime Minister's questions in the company of Charlotte Ivers, our political correspondent. Captain Hindsight hasn't said anything for a couple of days, so we can look forward to Sakir reminding the Prime Minister what he should have done uh, and when he should have done it. Plus, I'll be telling you why the BBC is paying someone to teach their employees how to drink water properly, for heaven's sake. Absolutely unbelievable. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... 
Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I should tell you that this afternoon, this very afternoon, we'll be filming the second head-to-head debate. Uh, the first one between Peter Hitchens and Dan Hodges was a massive, roaring success uh, with over 300,000 people watching it. Uh, and it was, of course, all about the lockdown rules, when the lockdown should be lifted. Today, we've got Toby Young from the Free Speech Union uh, and uh, Christopher Snowden from the Institute of Economic Affairs, both of whom have very different opinions about the lockdown, both of whom will be putting their cases, both of whom uh, I'm sure uh, will be uh, very, very polite in the way that they dismiss each other's arguments. Let's talk now, though, to Deanna Davison, Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland, one of the new uh, late uh, Tory MPs uh, who caught in in December, uh, a woman who has previously uh, been on this show and somebody who I think we can say with a reasonable amount of accuracy uh, is a very sensible uh, young MP. Deanna, a very good morning to you. Well, thanks, Mike, and thanks for the very warm introduction there. Listen, um, I'm, all in fav- I'm all in favour of new MPs because the reason I like new MPs is because you've got an opportunity to kind of change the way things are done. You've got an opportunity to not be part of the furniture. Um, and you have made quite a splash for yourself, I would say, uh, in, the, in the first few months that you've been in. Tell us, first of all, I know you've got um, a bill that you want to talk about, which we'll get to in a minute. But tell us, first of all, about the Boris plan, uh, how you feel about it, what your constituents feel about it, and, and, and whether you agree with me that that actually it might even get speeded up? Well, I think, you know, I've seen a few a few newspapers report it as the Goldilocks plan. Mm. Um, and, I th- and I think that's probably a pretty accurate, um, you know, accurate representation there. You know, the last thing we want to do is go too quickly and face another lockdown. I don't think that would be good for anyone, for anyone's business, uh, for, for health, but also for mental health. Um, and also we don't want to go too slowly because, frankly, we want to get the economy opened up as quickly as possible and get life back to normal as quick as we can. Mm. So I think the, the very careful approach announced by the Prime Minister is the right approach. Um, I think it's right that we have that sort of staggering in between so that we can see the actual um, tangible impacts of each stage of the unlock before we move on to the next stage. Um, would I like to see it speeded up if the cases and, um, and vaccination rates are going in the right direction? Of course I would. Um, like anyone else, I want to get back to normal as soon as we possibly can. But mm. I do think the Prime Minister's right in the sense that it has to be data-driven. Yes, I mean, I think two things which which have come up in the last couple of days that people have, have, have questioned, as far as I'm concerned, is one, um, have the government now finally accepted that hospitality does have to be part of the plan and hospitality can't be left behind because there are so many people dependent upon it uh, as an employer, also so many people dependent upon it uh, for, for making a living and for being able to actually to, to live. But Secondly, as well, the other thing which people are annoyed about, it seems to me, is this kind of in, uh, instruction to schools that kids are going to have to go back to school and they're going to have to wear masks for the whole period of time that they're there. So literally seven to eight hours a day. Well, I think I think your point on hospitality is um, is really valid. And certainly I've been fighting for the hospitality sector um, right since the lockdown hit um, back in March last year. Um, I worked in hospitality for a number of years, as, as kind of so many young people do in, in those first couple of jobs, um, and recognise, you know, just how valuable it is um, for our economy, but also for our local communities. Um, so certainly, you know, I, I think there is a recognition of how important the sector is. And I'm certainly hoping in the budget next week to see um, that support extended for the hospitality and leisure sectors just to make sure they're able to get through this final bit of, um, of lockdown mm. so that by the time they reopen, you know, they can reopen with a bang um, and really get their businesses fully back on their feet. Mm. Um, your question there about, about masks for children in school, I mean, obviously, 
this is a recommendation that's been made based on the scientific evidence to reduce any risk of kind of transmission between children. Now, we know that schools are safe. We know that children are very likely, um, very unlikely, I should say, to have uh, any real kind of serious um, health issues if they are unlucky enough to contract coronavirus. But I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure there's anything particularly wrong with an additional level of protection, but I can understand why some parents are perhaps a little bit uneasy with the idea. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem, I think for a lot of parents is, you know, we, yes, we want to try and normalise life for as much uh, of us as possible, particularly for our children. And if they're going to be going back to school, but they're going to have to sit there with masks on continually for the whole day, it's not going to be helpful to them at all. And I've, I've certainly had a lot of women and, and men calling me to say, look, we're not going to send our kids back. We're going to wait till after the Easter holidays and we're just not going to do it. And I, I'm not quite sure where that leaves them in terms of uh, any kind of you know legal requirement. Well, one of the things that is being investigated at the moment, Mike, is um, is whether or not the vaccination is kind of suitable for children. I mean, obviously, at the moment, we are prioritising the people who are most at risk, which is why we started with the most vulnerable and the sort of elderly. But there are trials going on at the moment to, to, to see what the impact of the vaccine is on children, mm. both in terms of, you know, them kind of contracting the virus, but, but mainly in terms of transmission. Um, so that's something that's going on in the hope that, you know, we can offer the maximum protection to everyone right across our society. And that could maybe be uh, be something that could help reduce any need for, for masks in the classroom. Yes, well, let's hope so. Let's talk a little bit about your um, uh, investigation that's going on because your father tragically was killed uh, by one punch uh, which somebody inflicted upon him 14 years ago. Uh, you're now uh, trying to set up an all-party committee to, to look into it. Tell us about that. Um, well, you know, when I was 13, uh, my dad received one blow to the head in a pub and died instantly. Um, and you can imagine the sort of impact that that had on my life and the life of my family. Mm. Um, and it kind of really has driven me to, to want to do something about it to kind of stop those those horrific events from happening to other families, but also make sure that they're getting the, the justice and the support that they need. So um, as of yesterday, uh, I uh, set up and, and launched the all party parliamentary group for one punch assaults. Um, with the intention of holding a really widespread investigation into everything around one punch assaults, looking at sentencing, looking at the support that victims and their families receive, um, looking at education and how best we can go and kind of show people that raising your fist isn't the answer. Um, so we're going to be kicking off that investigation next week. We want to talk to um, victims who've been left with life changing injuries. We want to talk to the families of victims who sadly passed away from these assaults. Uh, judges, lawyers, police officers, but also we're keen to talk to perpetrators as well to get their reflections on, on how they feel they were treated by the criminal justice system. Yes, I was going to ask you what happened to the assailant in, in your father's case? Where, where, where did he go? How long did he go away for? Uh, he was acquitted, actually, um, which was really? you know, very difficult, very difficult for my family to, to come to terms with. Right. And what grounds was he acquitted then? Um, so uh, he he claimed self-defence. Right. There were contradictory witness reports, but it being a manslaughter trial, the burden of proof is obviously incredibly high. Mm. Um, so, you know, the jury couldn't, you know, believe beyond reasonable doubt that that wasn't the case. And um, That's awful, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that must have been terrible for you. It, it was really difficult, not just in the sense of, you know, the fact that we'd had the shocking loss of dad and we were trying to, you know, get over the, the grief of that. 
but then to kind of have his character called into question in such a way as well. I mean, my dad was not a violent man in no. any way, shape or form. No. Um, and I mean, it does. Just... I mean, we've all been, I mean, maybe you, you personally haven't, but I mean, as a man, you, you are in those situations quite often where you think, you know, should I actually bother with this? Should I? I mean, I remember being in a situation once where I was coming out of a, a dry cleaners, believe it or not, at 10 o'clock in the morning um, in South London one day. And a guy came up behind me on a bike um, and rang his bell on the pavement and I turned around and said why don't you get in the bloody road or something like that right um and he basically got off the bike and was sort of squaring up to me and I thought to myself this is mad this is actually ridiculous you know he could suddenly throw a punch at me or we could get into a fight over literally nothing and you know I just think that that, that there's an awful lot more of this going on than, than probably we know well, absolutely. And one of the things that we're a little bit concerned about is um, in terms of one punch assaults that we, we kind of don't have any specific figures for how many have um, have happened over mm. recent years. I mean, we have an idea from some charities and support groups that have been set up, but because of the way in which they're reported, there's kind of no official data on them, mm. which makes it quite difficult to judge the scale of the problem, yeah. which is one of the things we do want to look into um, in our inquiry. But the point you just said there about, you know, the, the experience you had outside of dry cleaners, which is which is nuts. Yeah. Um is uh is, is part of the the reason we want to run this kind of longer term plan around education as well yeah um again just to try and get out to to young people to young young offenders institutions whatever it might be um and share, share the stories of people who who have lost family members to this so yes. i'm doing some work with um one punch northeast and maxine there lost her own son um to a one punch assault and mm. she goes out into schools as a kind of um inspirational speaker i guess and shares the story and uh has had a lot of young people coming up to her afterwards and sort of saying, you know, I, I've, you know, I always went towards, you know, getting in a fist fight or whatever, but you've really made me think. Yeah. So, because you know, I think there is definitely, there's definitely a sector of society uh, which sees violence as a very ordinary day to day sort of uh, occurrence. You know, they don't see that it's wrong or indeed that it's unusual for there to be a fight going on in the street or in the back garden or inside the house or anything like that. Mm hmm. Um, I, I think you're right, and it's going to come down to education, um, really. So that, that's one of our missions, and we're trying to be quite creative with, with how we do that. So one of the ideas we discussed yesterday at our inaugural meeting was about getting in touch with soap opera companies and seeing if they might be willing to run a storyline around One Punch Assaults to mm. show that, you know, it's not always really heavy violence that results in serious injury or death. It can be a, a you know, a very split-second decision to throw that one punch that can actually yeah. result in really catastrophic impacts. Sure. Let's talk just a little bit before I let you go, Deanna, about the whole uh, parliamentary experience for you, because you were elected in December 2019. Um, you haven't really been there much since then. So what's it been like? It has been a journey, Mike. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we were just sort of starting to settle in when the pandemic hit. Mm. So it was a really strange experience kind of, you know, being shipped back off to our constituencies and uh, having a mailbag that, you know, had gone from full anyway to absolutely bursting at the seams. Um, but, you know, it really is the most incredible job. I mean, you're able to do so much good for so many people. Um, I love speaking to my constituent surgery appointments, knowing that I can actually do things to make their lives better, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things might seem like really small actions. But to them, you know, it's things that mean the absolute world. Um, but you're right. We haven't spent a great deal of time in Parliament. So I, I reckon, you know, when Parliament is back mm. fully, it's probably going to be like, you know, uh, starting fresh and having to do sort of refresher courses and relearn everything. Yeah, exactly right. And what are you finding from your constituents about what they say about Boris? Because obviously up until the vaccine rollout, which was such a success and still continues to be such, such a success, uh, and aside from Brexit, a lot of people have expressed a bit of disappointment about how he's kind of stewarded the entire economy um, and, and stewarded the, the, the recovery from, from COVID-19. 
many people I've 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 seen uh, saying, you know, we'll never vote Tory again. We gave them our vote, but we're not going to do it next time. Are you worried about that? Um, I mean, it's it's always a concern if someone who put their faith in you is is kind of you know shaking and 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 potentially changing their minds. But I'd say the probably the the main message I'm getting from my constituents, you know, they may be disappointed with an element of the lockdown or an element of the pandemic that's impacted their lives. But for the most part, what I hear from them is, you know, I wouldn't want Boris's job. I wouldn't mm. want to have that pressure in those decisions. And they recognise how difficult a situation the prime minister and, and the whole cabinet are in to try and steer us through something that is kind of unprecedented in modern times. Mm. And um, that, you know, up until kind of recently, uh, we were still learning so much about about how the the virus spreads, about um, about its impact on people. Obviously, we've still got new variants. It's such a fast evolving situation um, where you know it's very difficult to to ensure that everyone kind of wins. You know, yeah. um, so I, th I think that's probably the key thing that people have sympathy with the prime minister for the really difficult decisions he's having to make. Sure. Well, I've been promising people since yesterday that around about March the 17th, very possibly, uh, or even maybe earlier, uh, I'm going to be standing somewhere near Borough Market with a pint of beer in my hand, uh, having bought it from one of the hostelries there. Um, given that we're seeing in the Telegraph today that there might be a speeding up of that uh, of that recovery plan. Do you think that's possible? Um, hard to say at the moment, Mike, as, as I say, it all has to be driven around the data. Um, and I kind of don't really want to speculate too much and give people a, a false sense of hope. But certainly like you, I'm looking forward to that that first takeaway pint as soon as we're allowed to have one. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, excellent. Well, hopefully the weather will improve. Uh, the sky will be blue. Uh, we'll be standing there at some point or other, possibly in the same place, having the same uh, amount of drink together. Deanna, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Deanna Davidson there, Conservative MP for Bishop Auckland, talking not only about uh, her new one-punch committee, which is going on, uh, but also about the fact that, you know, this recovery will actually, I think, happen a lot quicker, as I said yesterday, uh, than we think that it will happen, because there is now a very good opportunity uh, for people to look at the sales um, of uh, uh, businesses that, that are going on, to look at the number of vaccinations that are going on, to look at the falling of the rates of the infection that are going on. And I think there's only one conclusion that you could then come to, which is time to open up the economy. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it is that time of the week when we uh, check in with our travel guru, Mr Simon Calder, a man who knows everything there is to know about the travel business, whether or not you can go anywhere, when you can go, uh, how you can get there, uh, and whether they will ask you for anything when you arrive. Of course, this morning, the Times has got a story saying Greece considers opening borders to Britain as early as May, uh, apparently flying in the face of EU uh, travel restrictions in which they say they'd like to see uh, all EU nations operating as one. Uh, however, Greece apparently uh, is a bit more desperate for the old petrodollar uh, than anybody else. Let's find out from Simon what's going on. Simon, very good morning to you. Uh, Mike, yes, it is an extraordinary uh, turn of events. And I think we're going to see it actually unfolding very much as we did last year. Mm. If you remember then, um, the European Union said, right, everybody, we want you to start opening your borders on the 15th of June and be fully open to everybody on the 1st of July. Yeah. And exactly as you say, um, lots of countries, particularly those in the Mediterranean with very tourism dependent economies, said you, you, you're having a laugh, uh, Brussels. Um, so, for instance, Croatia, basically you know, from May onwards, was saying, Mike, come over here, come over here. Mm. Greece actually was um, a little bit slower with the Brits because we were having a few problems, but they eventually um, opened up. And it is going to be, as we've seen all the way through, every country for itself. Right. And uh, 
uh, all I would do is caution you a little bit to think that, um, I mean, obviously you're decades away from getting your COVID jab. Well, do you know what? But... I keep seeing friends of mine who are younger than me saying, oh, I've got my uh, vaccination uh, update and I'm going to go and get mine next week. And I still haven't had one. No, well, um, a young man like you, uh, they, they clearly have, have other issues or something. I <laughs> well, think they obviously only... think that I'm superhuman and I'm probably immune or something like that, you know. Yeah, but but just suppose, just suppose you got your first one on the uh, uh, 1st of, of, of March and then you get your last one, what, back end of May, mm. um, your free refill. Um, then you'd be kind of good to go from the point of view of many countries. And they're already doing this. Estonia, Georgia, Romania. Oh, Mike, yeah, we don't mind. You, you Sputnik V, that's absolutely fine. Come on down. Right. Um, but what and, about uh, those poor uh, individuals who are so young that they're never going to be uh, reached before that period of time and then want to go on holiday but somehow find themselves uh, unable to go? Yes, you're talking about the uh, talk radio production team, I exactly. imagine. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, but they'll be fine too, because I tell you what, all this nonsense that um, uh, Greece is talking. Look, I love Greece. It's a fantastic place. I can't wait to go back mm. there. But they're, they're, they're kind of um, talking out of uh, two, two sides of their mouth at the same time. They're saying, um, oh, oldies, you've had your jabs in you come. Mm. But they're also saying, families, come here. Um, don't worry about all that that um, uh, vaccine passport nonsense. Yeah. So typically, what well, you will see I mean, that's is... the other question. I mean, a lot of people, and, and I would be included in this, uh, have children uh, who they want to take with them on holiday, regardless of the fact that I'd quite like to go without them sometimes. I have to you know, <laughs> drag them along. Um, what happens if they haven't had one, for example? I mean, are they going to say, well, that's great because you and your mother, you know, the kid's mother have had it, uh, but the kids haven't? No, it's not going to be like that at all. Of course, there may be kind of complete exemptions for children, which would be um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how you would define you would defend that on a kind of public health grounds. Mm. Um, and obviously, all of this is just about finding a balance between we want to open up to tourism so that we can rescue what's left of our economy. Mm. And we've got to protect our people. So every country is going to come up with a, a different balance. I mean, Greece is talking a great game. They're making sure everyone's talking about it in a way that people aren't talking about Spain or Portugal or Italy or Turkey. Um, so what they will say is, right, Mike, um, oh, we see you've got these annoying teenagers. Sorry, I'm sure they're absolutely lovely people. But, um, <laughs> they used to be. Uh, <laughs> They've certainly got a lot more annoying recently. <laughs> Um, and so what they're going to have to do is get a test before they come in or right. maybe one on arrival. And you can just say, right, well, you know, get yourselves a cab. Um, I'll be sitting at the taverna dangling my feet in the water mm. with a, a Mythos beer. Thank you. Absolutely. So you will be able to go in. It will just be lighter touch. Yeah. Now you're talking. And what about the return? Because one of my problems as an individual, I'm sorry to focus on myself here. But I mean, if I go to Greece in May uh, or indeed June, um, when I come back, what do we know about the quarantine situation here? Well, we know that the restrictions on travel, Mike, are going to get worse before mm. they get better. Oh, really? From the Oh, yes, absolutely. Snuck out on, I think, page 29 of that um, great long document about reopening yes. the roadmap to recovery was, oh, by the way, 8th of March... If you anybody thinking of going abroad, um, clearly only for essential purposes, mm. you've got to fill out a new declaration to travel, right. explaining why you are allowed to do that. Um, the airlines, the ferry companies, the train operators will get fined if they let you out and you don't have a decent reason. Mm. Um, I've talked to uh, the Home Office, to the Department for Transport. They they couldn't tell me any more about what it would involve. I've talked to transport operators, and they say they haven't got a clue, but that's coming along too, and that'll be just yet one more hurdle. Yeah. But, I mean, the main main problems are obviously, will the country let you in? 
Um, and we'll see about that. But certainly the Mediterranean nations, I think, will be delighted to see the Brits. You know, here we are, as, as you've been reporting, way ahead of every other country. Mm. We're going to go from kind of sick man of Europe to um, everybody's favourite nationality um, overnight, All I right. should think. Amazing. Um, well, we hope so. Now, but uh, you've then got to, as you say, get back into the UK. And that involves um, a test within 72 hours of leaving two more tests that you have to buy through the government for 210 pounds so you're already up per to head. 300 smackers yeah per Fine. person and then if you have the misfortune to come back from say portugal you're also going to be in um, under house arrest in the uh, novatel uh, uh, at heathrow right. so that, those are not conditions, I think, that are conducive to the, the uh, Mike Graham family holiday, are they? They're really um, not. I mean, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because you think about all of that and you think, really? Do I really want to put myself through this? Do I really want to spend that much money uh, on getting tested? Do I really want to shove th something up my nose repeatedly uh, for the rest of uh, the holiday? And do I have to also wear a bleeding mask uh, from the moment yeah. I enter the airport to the moment I leave the other airport? Well, I mean, certainly that last point, you you almost certainly will, um, and uh, that that will. Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. But the worst experience I've had was actually on a, a very heavily delayed train, which went, was supposed to mm. just go to York, normally two hours from London, and this I think was five hours, oh, and that was that was fairly um, right. uncomfortable. I bet. But uh, no, the, the the understanding in the travel industry, and of course, all of this is hedged by the government. They say won't be any earlier than the 17th of May that you can go abroad. Um, it won't necessarily be on that date, mm. but it certainly won't be any earlier. So it's all very, very heavily hedged. Yeah. But the airlines, the holiday companies know that if the government is serious about restarting travel, then they're going to have to get rid of those restrictions for, from all their kind of key countries. And there might be the odd one. It might be that Portugal's still having real problems and that stays on the no-go list. But yeah. Spain's OK, Croatia's OK, I mean, Greece I still, is OK. I still think, Simon, I don't know about you, but I mean, I still think there's going to have to be at some point um, a brave decision made by politicians of, of, every, of every hue and in every country that they go, look, we can't carry on like this. You know, we need the tourism business back. It's a massive business. It creates massive amounts of, uh, of revenue for the government. It creates massive amounts of jobs. And we can't just continue to ban people from various different countries and stop people from going anywhere. Mike, you say that, but then have a listen to Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I'd rather they are not. <laughs> uh, Scotland, um, she, of course, is the first minister. For the um, moment. I I mean, we'll be talking about that coming up a bit later on in the show. Right, you know, okay. She's on what uh, they call it in Scotland, a sugarly peg. Right. Well, they, they say lots of things in Scotland. But what they particularly say about tourism is that uh, we're not even going to think about opening up till the back end of um, April. Right. Um, she's already warned, um, you know, don't plan your summer holidays. Uh, we might be able to stay in Scotland. But they very, very, very much have this idea that, um, no, you've got to keep people out. That's the only thing you can do. And, uh, Especially the English. I didn't say that. Crikey. <laughs> um, their tolerance of risk, not their tolerance of you, their tolerance of risk is low. Uh, it appears to be very low. Yeah. Um, I think other countries will have a much higher tolerance of risk mm. because they desperately need to uh, rescue their tourism industry. And you would have thought that maybe Scotland would, given that it is such, you know, it's much more crucial tourism to Scotland than it is to 
England, um, uh, tourism for Wales also very, very important, yeah. which is why the first minister there, Mark Drakeford, and I will choose my words very carefully because not everybody in Wales loves me, I've noticed. Um, well, not everybody in Wales minister... loves Mark Drakeford either, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark Drakeford has said that he is hopeful of opening self-contained accommodation yeah, really? in time for Easter. Right. Now, there's going to be a review. We simply don't know what's going to happen. We're obviously how many weeks away, sort of seven, about five weeks away uh, from then. Um, but that might happen, in which case it would um, clearly uh, be of benefit maybe to people. Well, I think people in Wales would be able to take advantage of that. People in England wouldn't because mm. we'll still have the ban on staying overnight. Yes. Well, they've always had a bit of an interesting relationship, haven't they, Scotland and Wales, with uh, people travelling in and out of their country. I always remember, I think they've done away with it now, but the old uh, Seven Crossing used to only be uh, chargeable as you went into Wales, and as you were leaving, it was free. So you were free to go, but you had to pay to get in. Yeah, well, that sounds about right. It's a beautiful, beautiful country. <laughs> it I is. Would, I, I love it. I love paid. it very, very much. I'm both, um, in fact, I, I, in, and as far as Scotland goes, I'm actually technically Scottish, so so I'm uh, required uh, to go to yeah. Scotland quite regularly uh, to go and visit my, the, the birthplace of my ancestors uh, and also uh, to visit several of my friends. But here's the other thing, right? Um, the idea that Scotland can live without tourism is a complete nonsense because basically it's their biggest industry. You know, take aside uh, oil and gas and uh, whiskey. Tourism is what makes Scotland tick. Yeah, but but um, you know uh, that they, I think they are taking the view that um, they've done pretty well. Um, you know, they'd say they've done better than the rest of the UK. Yeah, but they'd be wrong they about that, to, wouldn't they? That that they they want to keep it that way, and therefore because they know, and I'm not getting into politics here. I'm just reading what it says um, about the financial settlement because they believe that they will get effectively compensated for losses from tourism. Yeah. They say, no, we're going to keep keep the borders shut um, mm. uh, in, in a way that, of course, they're perfectly entitled to do, as is Wales. And um, I mean, we saw last summer for quite a time, if you were in Wales, you could travel around and stay overnight in Wales. If you were outside Wales, you couldn't go in. Mm. And that's... Um, that's entirely up to every country. Yes. And what's the status of America? And I'll ask that again uh, entirely selfishly because obviously my mother uh, is uh, getting on a yes. bit. She's going to be 97 on March the 29th. Crikey. I'd very much like to go and see her. She's had two yes. vaccines uh, now and she's in good order. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping, she keeps saying, when are you coming? And I keep saying, well, I don't know. I can't tell you. But I mean, what do you reckon about the American situation? OK, well, look, um, so there's a couple of things. You are in the category and there's a lot of people in this, Mike, that you would know. Um, of people who have really pressing family reasons for wanting, needing to mm. travel. And so therefore, you know, you should have absolutely a, a fast pass to get there. Um, and uh, I, I think those will be the people who initially will be allowed to travel. Bear in mind that um, it's been illegal for almost a year for anybody from the UK mm. to go to the US, as you will know full well. Yeah. It was um, lifted for about 10 minutes uh, by Donald Trump and then um, uh, Joe Biden put it in place. Yeah. There there will be onerous requirements. We were talking about how tough it is getting into the UK. Mm. Um, the US will probably put some really strict testing regimes in. Effectively, to say to people like you, we know you really want to come here. We're going to make it possible for you, but we're not going to make it easy for you. Mm. And then, of course, coming back in, it would be the same thing. But uh, I would say that you, you can claim to have uh, important caring duties yeah. And um, I would I, I would be 
keeping hopeful. But in terms of an actual holiday, I don't think that we'll all be rushing back to Florida on the 17th of March, uh, May, even though, um, of course, I would love to be. No, of course. I mean, I'm thinking more of a quick sort of hop across for the weekend type thing. Yeah. But, well, you'd but, need you know. to you'd need to quarantine when you came back. That's the um, that's, that's the problem. The that's why worry. I can't yeah. do it at the moment. That's uh, absolutely yeah. irritating the hell out of me. But Simon, as ever, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Great information from Simon Call, the travel writer at the Independent, of course, travel guru. Uh, I would say uh, more likely. Um, but the trouble is, right? It's all very well reading these stories about Greece opening up in May uh, when uh, nobody else is doing so. It's all very well saying well, you can go to Greece, but you might not have to quarantine when you come back. We don't know that yet. Lots of people apparently are booking summer holidays. If you've done that, if you're one of them, I'd love to hear from you because um, I don't know what uh, has inspired you to do so or what has indeed convinced you that by booking a summer holiday, you've got something to look forward to, but you might not actually be able to do it. You might not be able to go. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, uh, go to Mr. Neil Oliver, archaeologist, TV presenter, who wrote uh, a piece in the Sunday Times at the weekend in which he said, Scotland is making me sick and it's not COVID that's to blame. Neil, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. Good to see you. Yeah, things are going from bad to worse up there, aren't they? I mean, it's one thing. I mean, you said to me during the week that your kids or kids in Scotland have been wearing masks uh, for, for quite a long time already. How's that working out? Well, uh, we've had, I think, um, you know, a lot of the media coverage tends to, you know, to, to pr- focus on the announcements that are coming from, uh, you know, from Boris Johnson and, mm. from, the, and from the government in Westminster. And we've, we've been walking a, a, a different a, a different road. And I would say that we've had a tighter lockdown for longer mm. 
uh, than, say, south of the border. And certainly I was interested in a lot of the debate that was going on or the conversations that were going on about, you know, kids having to wear masks at school because my the senior kids in, in high school here, which, you know, takes in two of my kids, mm. they've been wearing masks in class for uh, for months. Really? Yeah, and, uh, you know, you'd, I suppose you'd have to ask individual kids how they feel about that and how inconvenienced they feel by it. Right. Sadly, I suppose... You know, for, for youngsters, the longer it goes on, the more it does become just something that they have, uh, you know, learned to get used to. Yeah. Which is not to say that it's a good thing. Right. It's just if it's something that's inflicted upon you, then I suppose you just find ways to... Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? it? I mean, I've been talking to people in the last few days about the kind of supplicants that people suffer from now, where, you know, they ask, rather than saying, what the hell do you mean I can't go to Greece? They, they ask instead, oh, when will I be able to go on holiday? And you go, yeah, you know, that- for heaven's sake... Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting turning point, tipping point, uh, where once upon a time we we took we assumed that we were entitled to do things, anything in fact, unless there was a specific law right. that that prohibited us from doing it. Yeah, uh, and now it's flipped through 180 degrees, and now a lot of people are operating on the assumption that they're not allowed to do anything mm. unless they ask an authority figure first, right. and you know, and get a chitty. I <laughs> know. Oh, <laughs> it's they amazing can, that they can it? show whoever asks. And I suppose that's a natural kind of progression from uh, from months and months and months of, of just literally being forced into a situation. But that's why it's interesting what you say about mask wearing, because, I mean, I got a couple of tweets yesterday from, from people. One was a nurse who said, well, I wear a mask all day, every day, and sometimes I forget to take it off when I get into the car because I was so used to wearing it. Another woman said, oh, well, my granddaughter goes to school in Dubai and they've been wearing masks forever and nobody uh, thinks anything of it. Well, I'm sorry. I do not want my children to wear a mask in school every single hour of every single day. I think I think it's good for them. No, I mean you can make kids do anything. That's a fact. I mean, you know, we used to have six-year-olds in factories. Yeah. You know, we used to have kids in the coal mines. Those can, are the days. You, <laughs> kids, kids can be kids can be easily, uh, you know, acculturated to, to almost anything you want them to do. But right. obviously, there'd be schools. I thought about what was actually good for them. Mm. I don't think it's good for them. I mean, the idea, that, of, of course. I mean, a nurse or people working in in, in theatre, surgery, in, in those kind of uh, situations. Of yeah. course, they're wearing masks all day. I would too if I had that job. Right. Um, but you know, I don't wear a welder's mask all day because I'm not a welder. Right. Uh, you know, there's there's a place for these things, and I, I don't think the place for it. it I, kids, what worries me as much, if not more, is I'm already hearing what, I, what I, we've talked about it before. They're talking about getting the kids back into school and having uh, cancelling summer holidays, and you know, and having you know, pressuring them through to catch up, as though it was their fault that yeah. they're falling behind, which it isn't. And for me, the absolute. A 24 karat gold priority is that when the children go back to school, they go back into normal school. Yes. That would be my objective, right. where they're not worried about masks. They're not worried about, you know, tests and things getting stuck up their nose right. or, or down their throats to take swabs. They're just, you get them back into school and you, you reacquaint them with normality. Yes. You don't get them back in bums on seats and then say, right, we've now got to catch up for the year mm. you missed. The kids are desperately stressed, worried, worried about mm. all sorts of things. And they are worried about their educations and their futures. And the last thing they need is to go back into a school environment where they're told, right, mm. the race is on and it's catch right. up now or or fail. Well, that's, that's right. wrong. Well, that is wrong. And also, I mean, I've been talking to a lot of parents over the last sort of 24 hours or so, and they're saying to me, well, well, either it's safe to go back to school or it's not. And if it's safe to go back to school, why do you need a mask? Why do you need to be tested? Why do you need a vaccine? Well, 
I, I get I get shouted at for saying this, but I don't see anything changing much anytime soon. Based on what has happened before, I think if if the policy is to maintain mass testing, then if and when we open up and whatever open schools, open shops, open pubs, open theatres, open, if they keep testing, the number will go back up again, and they'll have all the the the, the justification in inverted commas that they've ever required to lock down again. Right. I think the idea that this is the last lockdown is a is a fantasy. I really do, uh, and I can also uh, you can see the way in which um, uh, everything about climate change, which, which had sort of gone into abeyance, mm. we weren't hearing so much about that for a year, yeah. and it's it's back again. And I could easily see circumstances in which there's a neat sort of uh, segue, a sort of sleight of hand, where the the restrictions that have been in place to control. Uh, COVID could, could conveniently become restrictions that would bring down the amount of carbon emissions. Oh, yeah. I the mean, planes all the, I are mean, on the ground, you, you, cars are parked on the pavement. Absolutely. I mean, people aren't going anywhere and they might well say, well, this used to be about COVID, but hey, now that we've all learned to not go anywhere, not travel anywhere, stay in our houses, yeah. that could quite easily be, by a sleight of hand, that could become, and now it's about carbon emissions. Yeah. Because it's based on the same nonsense of modelling uh, and, you know, projection and, you know, what the future truth will be rather than what the actual current truth is. And you can very easily see, I would imagine, Neil, people sort of shaking their fist at you for driving down the road in a car instead of being on a bike. Yeah, there is no way, short of putting, uh, you know, short of military curfews and whatever uh, and, you know, and people being shot on sight, mm. there is no way that, that, that a government... It can maintain control of people. The, the only way it works, short of that kind of you know Eastern Bloc coercion, is if people police each other. Right. And, and to some extent, that's already been achieved. Mm. You know, you need you need neighbour watching neighbour, and you need people controlled by by the censure of their peers, so that you know that you know things like smoking, you know that that, that didn't become that didn't you know diminish in the way that it has because mm. of laws it right. became something that was that you were pariah yeah if you were smoking in an right. office or smoking in a shop yeah that people assumed became, that, that, that if you were still smoking despite all of the warnings about it that you must be an idiot effectively so that so that's how that's how that's done yeah. you know it's it's we, we police societies are trained to and and uh, and and uh, and molded into policing each other and that that much has already been achieved Yes, exactly right. Let's talk a bit about what the SNP are up to, because Nicola Sturgeon yesterday refusing to go further than Boris Johnson, uh, refusing to um, lift the, uh, the, the the sanctions which she's put into place uh, on the grounds that, uh, you know, it's not time. Uh, and as you say, you know, she's not ready to do it yet. Um, but quite extraordinary what's going on there, isn't it? I mean, you wrote at the weekend that, you know, for the last 14 years, the SNP has been in charge of, of Scotland effectively. Um, and they're they're ruining it. Yeah, the, uh, SN, the SNP have been in power for too long. Uh, I think that's you know, fourteen years. You know, presumably I can't even remember. But I'm, I'm quite sure when the SNP got into a position of power, they were saying, right, bear with us for a mm. little while, and we'll we'll make Scotland a better place. I mean, yeah. that is that's what political parties, that's what governments trade on. You know, we will now we will now improve the, the lot of the many. Yeah, uh, and if you can't. If after 14 years, all the evidence shows that you've made everything worse, then you can't do it and you've been in place for too long. 
And everything has gone down, education, health, the hospitals that can't open. You know, 100 years ago, uh, one, one in every te- a tenth of the world's shipping was built on the mm. Clyde. Now we can't build a couple of ferries. They're rusting on the they're rusting hulks on the Clyde. Yeah. The bridge that has to close because if it's icy, blocks of ice could wreck cars. Right. All sorts of scandals about individual SMPs. You know, the 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 uh, uh, the, the person who is being groomed effectively as as the first minister's successor, Mackay. I mean, he had to step away because he had been sending hundreds of, of tweets to a schoolboy, yeah. uh, calling him cute. Uh, so he had to he, he had to step away. There are other there are there are legion the the, the scandalous uh, and tawdry uh, allegations about one SNP MSP after another are, are are too many to mention. They've just been there for too long. It's a it's a fatigue that sets in, an inertia that sets in. They've had long enough to make Scotland a better place, and by most metrics, they've made they've made Scotland a worse place. Right. Uh, and, the, and they've made it a I mean, much this... less tolerant place. I mean, I lived in Scotland up until about 2008, I think I left. Um, and up until then, devolution was actually seeming like a quite a good idea. You know, Jack McConnell was the first minister. Uh, he's a decent guy. I got to know him quite well. Um, he doesn't agree with me about everything. And he banned smoking when I still smoked, which I constantly blame him for. Uh, but it did make me give up in the end. But, you know, it's, devolution was, was working somehow. But now it seems like a, a beast that's kind of eating itself. Well, I would say that the 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 what they call the Salmond inquiry uh, has been a stress test for for the devolution settlement and the and the assembly, the parliament in Scotland, uh, and it's it's breaking under the under that stress yeah. test. Uh, you know that we don't have a second chamber, uh, you know, a, a House of Lords, as it were, to scrutinise what's going on. And the idea was always that they would have these very strong independent committees. Uh, that would have the necessary powers, the teeth, uh, to scrutinise and to make sure that everything was above board. And, and these these committees were trumpeted as mm. going to be, you know, the most open and, you know, and empowered, far-reaching, you know, bodies. And, and that was that was how that was all going to be managed. Now, the the the, the proof of that would have been in the pudding of of the Salmond inquiry. And yes. I, I would just invite anyone south of the border to consider what would be happening if if this situation was unfolding. Uh, in Westminster, mm. you, you know, hypothetically, you know, if you had a if you had a, a sitting Tory uh, prime minister uh, who who was being ha- having allegations made uh, about him by a former Tory prime minister, mm. uh, the, and that who was saying that you know that he, uh, he or she had been accused of all sorts of of, of sexual wrongs, that he'd been cleared of that in court, but was alleging that there had been a conspiracy. Uh, that even the, the even the present prime minister had had been a part of to to ruin that person's life and to have them sent to jail for the rest of their lives. Now that would be the, the the media would be over that like a cheap suit. Oh yeah, they'd be watching every move of it, and it would be it would be dominating every broadcast round of the clock. And now we've got a situation where the Crown Office in Scotland, which is the equivalent of the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service in England, yeah, is now is now meddling. In the in the an inquiry, a, a public inquiry that's being carried out by well, this is what uh, I couldn't by the understand. Parliament. That yes, is that yeah. is wrong. That I mean, is demonstrably wrong. Yeah, I mean, their in uh, sort of investigation or their interruption, if you like, of this uh, committee hearing uh, yesterday seemed bizarre because I didn't one understand what their reasoning was because the information that they're seeking to to block 
is already out there in the public domain, has already been published in The Spectator, has already been talked about quite substantially in various forms of the media. And yet here they are attempting to kind of stop it from being discussed at one single committee, which has caused Alex Salmon to once again reverse his decision uh, to go before them. It seems ludicrous. I mean, again, I would, I would just say I would invite anyone to imagine what the reaction would be in public and in the media uh, if, a, if, a, if an inquiry in Westminster, if a public inquiry in Westminster uh, was being interfered with by hmm. the CPS. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't even think play that. the CPS could do such a thing. I really don't think they have that sort of power and neither should the Crown Office have that sort of power. But clearly they were presumably instructed by the First Minister to do it. Yeah, I, I, I don't. It, it is definitely becoming so. It's of by such, legally speaking, it's now of such Byzantine complexity yeah. that it's getting into territory where you'd need a legal mind or, or a legal qualification really to properly to follow what's going on. Mm. What I what I feel and and what I know a lot of other people around me feel is that Scotland deserves better mm. than this. If this if this is where devolution if this if the nature of the devolution settlement has given us this then this is not good enough no and the people of scotland deserve better than this i don't see any way in which you can deny that mm. a, a lot of a, a lot of it has to do with the way it how it looks and the way it's being perceived now you know we've got a first minister here who is is more than happy to stand up and say that she believes that in in being in being scrutinized in being open, in being honest, but the conduct of her conduct and that of the SNP and this SNP-dominated committee, so that the SNP is scrutinising itself. Mm. I mean, I, I, how that is supposed to work, I don't know. It doesn't look good, and there's a growing number of people that feel from within Scotland that it, it, it just feels like ma mafia. Yeah, you know, it, it feels more like a crime family right. than anything else. It does. You know, because, and that, that is any, how it, that is how it looks. And any kind of dis, uh, dissent is is treated as malfeasance almost. It's not treated uh, as it should be. It's not taken on board. It's not kind of um, discussed. You are basically the enemy of the state if you've got something to say which you disagree with something the SNP are doing. I mean, you mentioned in your piece that, that Willie Rennie, the head of the Lib Dems, who we had on the show actually on Monday, um, has basically castigated the education system in Scotland, which used to be world class, and said it's not fit for purpose. That is a that is a genuine heartbreaker for a lot of people in Scotland. Mm. You know, it, it might be hard to... You know, I don't know to sort of to to uh, empathise with the extent to which Scottish people were so proud of the education mm. that was freely available to, to one and all. Right. You know, we we used to my parents and when I was growing up, it was celebrated. You know, it was it was shouted from the from the highest hills, the the quality of the education that yeah. was available here and the idea of the ladder perts. You know, the 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 boy or the girl from the from the most modest uh, uh, background could through the through the education that was freely available achieve the highest office go anywhere in the world yes. go and, and succeed there that's what we told each other and that's what we told ourselves and and fundamentally it was true yeah but also the, it was born the, it was born out wasn't it? It was borne out by the number yeah. of, of Scottish people in government in, in, in Britain, as a general rule, at the top of professions, at the top of companies. I mean, it was a very proud country, Scotland, because it produced yeah. these very smart people. 
Absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't subscribe to you know exceptionalism and 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 claiming some kind of honour because a, a set of you know coincidences meant that you were born at a, a set of coordinates. Yeah. You know, but but it was definitely the case that you knew that as someone who had been who had been uh, raised in Scotland and that you had gone to school in Scotland, that it was very much your own fault if you hadn't been able to grasp that and yes. take advantage of it and do whatever you wanted mm. it was it was low hanging fruit and i mean education is the is the building block of of everything for people coming up and it was brilliant and you know and scotland was a fantastic place to go to school yeah. any any school in scotland right. you know, they were they were turning in they were turning in results that were on league tables you know that that held their heads up high in the wider world, right. Scotland's had to take itself off those league tables. Of course, it has because and it's too embarrassing. Yeah, you know, we've, where we were, where we were, a sort of a, a Man United or a or a or a, or a Rangers. Mm. You know, you know, we're Accrington Stanley now, and you know, we're <laughs> well, you we're know, my dad. I, I mentioned my dad many times to you, but he had, he had this great phrase, which I've no doubt uh, I will get into trouble for repeating. But he used to say, "There's no such thing as the average Englishman; they're all below average." And, you know, um, I used to find that very amusing. I used to say it to people as well. I used to wind them up no end. But the Scots had the ability to be able to defend that sort of position because they were very well educated. And like you say, yeah. I mean, now uh, the Scots are a kind of inward-looking, tiny-minded um, race of people who don't well, want anyone coming in from the outside. And Nicola Sturgeon's kind of policy about keeping people away is just feeding into that. Let me just qualify that there. I mean, we, we, the kind of the kind of Scottish person that still exists, and we're, there's plenty of us. We might even be the majority. We are as horrified by that uh, persona yes. as you are, yes. as anybody is. Mm. You know, the 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 Scots that I mix with are the Scots that have always been here. Yes, they are. They are. Uh, they are decent, uh, fantastic sense of humour. Self-deprecating, also proud, mm. a wonderful culture, yeah. welcoming. You know, it, it's the legend that was the Scottish personality. Well, it still exists, yeah. and people of that ilk are as horrified by the kind of you know Ian Blackford representation yeah. of 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 Scottishness that is out there on stage. That is not the that is not Scotland. That yeah. is the SNP. Mm. And that's a different animal. Yes. No, I totally get that. And I think a lot of people do. But equally, uh, it's damaging the Scottish kind of image because people in England now say, well, I'll tell you what, if you want to have a referendum on Scottish independence, give it to us in England and they'll be gone uh, in, you know, quicker than you can say, um, you know, Hogmanay. I hear the same thing, and I, I, I and I can understand why. If you were if you're bombarded with that representation of Scotland all the time, that SNP representation of Scotland, then I'm sure you would feel like that. Yeah. But the the Scot, the Scot, as I understand, the Scot is still here. You know, and we just don't get the microphone or the stage, mm. uh, and the the devolution settlement as I say, has been stress tested over and over again, most recently and most pertinently and most revealingly by this by this so-called inquiry. Uh, and it's it's not fit for purpose. Uh, and we I, I say, I'll say it, I'll say it, every opportunity, every chance I get, Scotland is better than this and deserves better than this. Yeah. 
I think you're absolutely right. Neil, we're out of time, unfortunately, but fascinating stuff. And, I mean, at some point or other, Alex Salmon will presumably appear before this committee, and at some point or other, he will be able to say what he wants to say. Neil Oliver, thank you very much indeed. Archaeologist, TV presenter, man uh, of the people, uh, a man who talks an awful lot of common sense and also talks for the whole of Scotland. Uh, when you know people from Scotland, and you, as I do, uh, you know that they are not like Nicola Sturgeon. They are not the kind of inward-looking, you know, frightened, timorous beasties, as Robbie Burns would say, uh, who don't want any visitors from England, who don't want any visitors from abroad, who don't want any visitors to come to Scotland because they might spread the virus. Absolute and utter claptrap. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Prime Minister's questions, of course, coming up at midday with Charlotte Ivers. We'll be covering it in our own inimitable way here at Talk Radio uh, with a lot of uh, a flash bang uh, and some great uh, special effects, of course, as well. Before we talk to Emma Webb, commentator about the BBC and their latest blunder, uh, let me just read you this from Scott in Southampton. He's texted in uh, to 87222. Uh, he says, uh, it's not just the politicians and the school face mask rules which lack all common sense. I'd like to ask Mike Graham, if he can, live on air, declare my support bubble, Samantha from Portsmouth, deserves a place on Plank of the Week for giving me COVID. She had been working with a colleague who had flu-like symptoms and was then not only stupid enough not to realise it could be COVID, thought that even if it was the flu, it would be all right to bring it to my flat and for not telling me about her colleague's illness until after she'd already spent half the evening in bed with me. I'm happy to talk live on air about this bizarre state of affairs and how people's lack of common sense is actually giving the government an excuse to keep us locked up forever. Indeed it would be a peaceful way to get my own back. <laughs> That's brilliant, Scott. Listen, I'm terribly sorry that your girlfriend has given you COVID. Uh, she ought to have known better. Uh, maybe you need to get a new girlfriend, Scott. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know what the number is, of course, 0344 499 1000, if you want to have your voice heard uh, about how dreadful she is and what an idiot she is. But listen, uh, there's plenty of idiocy out there. Uh, some of it is being encountered at the BBC. Let's talk to Emma Webb. Emma, very good morning to you. Hi, Mike. I hope you're uh, surviving the COVID pandemic. I don't know if you've actually had it, have you? I don't think so. No, that's good. I'm very glad to hear it. Now, um, there was a story that ran a month or so ago um, from, I think it was Guido who first put it out. The BBC uh, was investigating the possibility of trying to teach people how to drink water properly. Um, and it was roundly ridiculed. The BBC, I think, even denied that it was going on. But they found out, according to a Freedom of Information request, that actually not only was it true, but about 30 people at the BBC took part in some kind of ridiculous uh, seminar uh, teaching them how to drink water. It's hilarious, isn't it? Mm. I, I hope that they t- the 30 who took the course did it out of sort of curiosity <laughs> to find out, where, how, you know, how could you how could you teach somebody how to drink water for an entire hour? I, I would love to know what the I mean, I've got a glass of water here. I'm pretty sure I can manage to drink it without actually needing any sort of instruction <laughs> of any kind. Maybe you might need to give listeners uh, some directions on how to gulp it. Yes. Um, yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? And um, I think some of the people at the BBC insiders were initially reported as having found it quite funny. So obviously the BBC staff aren't so far gone that they thought that this was something that they actually needed. But it's, it's interesting because the BBC, um, I've actually out of a sort of morbid curiosity for my sins, been watching a lot of BBC, uh, recently, particularly and the one show. Um, and, not not to knock Blue Peter because it was great when I was eight years old, 
But the whole of B the BBC's content output has turned into this kind of paternalistic, infantilizing um, children's program. Yeah. So it's hardly surprising that they feel that they have to teach their own staff, presumably people who should be the absolute uh, top of journalism, just to do simple things like staying fit at home um, and how to drink water. Yeah. I think the other courses they were offering was uh, how to balance work and childcare. So oh um, it's hardly surprising that, that they th feel that they need to do this when they're I mean, it is extraordinary, isn't it? And also, I mean, whenever I see the one show, which is usually by accident um, because I've left something else on, um, it seems to be just a sort of general sort of plug for everything else that's on the BBC. You know, oh, look, here's an interview with somebody who's in a show that the BBC are putting on tomorrow. Or here's somebody who's in uh, a movie that the BBC are putting out. Or here's somebody who's in a series that the BBC are putting out. All they seem to do is plug their own show all the time. Yeah, it, 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 it seems like a, a kind of a happy, clappy propaganda, particularly over all of the COVID coverage, because the thing that's really been irking me and the reason why I've been keeping an eye on it is because their, their coverage of any lockdown sceptic position, any criticism of government hmm. policy is either non-existent or it's just completely dehumanising of the other side as if it's totally beyond the pale. Right. Um, and some of the stories that they that they've been um, airing, lots of things about lockdown romances, and just generally, it has the tone of a "Here's one I made earlier" mm. children's presenter. <laughs> um, so I, I can only imagine that the content of the of that water drinking course must have really been something to experience. Oh, I know. And also, you know, I watched ITN News for the first time in a while last night. And I was quite staggered at the end when they said, as they kind of, you know, sign off, um, you know, stay safe, stay home. I'm like, sorry, what's it got to do with you what I'm doing? You know, this is the ITN newsreader telling me to stay home. Well, I'm not going to yeah. stay home. Thanks very much indeed. I'm going out, actually. And in fact, after it finished, I went out just for the hell of it. <laughs> it drives it drives people to alternative <laughs> sources of media, doesn't yeah. it? Inevitably. Because um, it, it, all of the main channels just seem to be uh, an arm of government propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Just everything is blindly supportive of the line in the same way that there's no opposition in Parliament really either to any of the um, policies over COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're going to see shortly, I dare say, you know, Captain Hindsight popping up once more in his blue suit. Uh, with his quaffed hair, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, stammering around about how the government are doing exactly the right thing, but they should have done it before and they should have done it earlier. Uh, but he totally uh, agrees with everything they're doing. I mean, it's a very bizarre world we're living in politically, isn't it? Yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if employers could treat their staff as if they were, you know, actually adults and yes. that the broadcasters could assume, as talk radio does, that its listeners are uh, fully functioning adults. Yes, who capable of making up their own well. minds. Yeah, and the, and the the information that you give them isn't somehow a, a danger to them, or is right. it going to harm them emotionally if you've exposed them to yeah. some views that are not perfectly flush with the government line? Right, but there is this kind of outbreak of um, whatever the opposite of common sense is. I'm not quite sure if we should invent a name for it, but I don't know if you saw uh, the story that was around yesterday. They've picked it up in the Daily Star today about Coca-Cola, who basically have told their staff that they need training uh, to make them feel less white. Um, they need them to be less oppressive, less arrogant and less ignorant, as if all of those things are commensurate with being white. It's horrendous, isn't it? Yeah. There is, there, we, do need, we do need a term, I think you're right there. We do need a term to describe this. It's a sort of uh, 
insipid infantilization of, of, well, not just adults, but our entire culture just seems to become one dimensional and shallow. And I mean, that that goes without saying the fact that clearly that Coca-Cola training course on how to be less white is evidently racist and um, just completely atrocious. I don't, I think it may have even been, I may be wrong here, but it may have even been a, a Robin D'Angelo training course, the lady who wrote, wrote White Privilege. I'm not sure if that's Oh, it could well case, be, but, yeah. Um, in, in any case, it's part of the same um, same general vein. Mm. Um, and it's remarkable that we're in a position where uh, our broadcasting and our companies and corporations are so rotten that these sorts of things can even go ahead and happen. Well, this is it. And also, I've always found, Emma, I don't know about you, but when you go right into it and you sort of drill down into this kind of white privilege argument... There's always somebody at the other end of it making money. And if it's Robin D'Angelo because she's being hired by companies to be consulted on this and paid bucket loads of money in order to sort of, you know, cleanse the organisation of, of white supremacists, you know, there's always somebody making a profit out of it. You know, whether it's whether it's all the way down to David Icke uh, and his reptilian royal family or all the way up to, to Robin D'Angelo, it's all cobblers and they're all getting rich on it. Yeah, all aboard the gravy train. Yeah. It, it's good grift if you can get on it. I think uh, people like Robin D'Angelo are earning um, thousands of pounds per uh, per, per, per training minute, session. probably, yeah. Just for telling people that they're white and awful and guilty and uh, and, and spreading what is, is really a kind of... Uh, we, 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 we refer to it as woke in mm. an almost um, dismissive sense, but it's a sort of pernicious new almost semi-religious ideology that they're spreading and they're getting paid an awful lot to do so it's very dangerous it seems to me and also people are being appointed in roles as we well know from the nhs to the bbc you know diversity coordinator um you know somebody brought in to make sure that there's enough um you know different people being involved and employed uh, by the company i mean it's a shocking business really yeah and those roles all pay more money than most normal people could even dream of. Yeah. 60 or 70,000 pounds upwards for some of those roles, mm. which is, I think, the same amount as MPs earn, uh, which is completely absurd. Yeah. And presumably this is just to uh, sort of saturate the organisations or the companies as much as possible right. in this new ideology. And we pointed out yesterday Merseyside Police and that ridiculous uh, poster campaign they launched which they then had to apologise for, where they said basically uh, giving offence uh, was indeed a crime. Uh, making people uh, offended was a crime, when in fact it clearly wasn't a crime, uh, and they got it completely... So you'd think the police would actually know what a crime yeah. was uh, instead of inventing new ones. Yeah, they, they had to had to come out and apologise <laughs> to tell people that actually the thing that they had, had put on that poster, the absolute opposite is true, and an, being offensive isn't at all an offence. Um, but that their intentions were well placed, right. and so in their apology, they actually reminded the public that it is a cr- uh, that hate crime is is an offence, and it is um, still an offence to presumably what they're trying to imply there is that certain certain types of speech are are offensive and an offence. Um, so it was a bit of a mealy mouthed apology, really. <laughs> I know, um, unbelievable. There's, there's nothing quite like seeing a police force standing in front of a um, LGBT flag rainbow with, with that kind of messaging on it thinking that that isn't going to absolutely uh, tank in public. 
I know. I know. Well, thank goodness there are people like you and I, Emma, around who will consistently uh, rail against it and hopefully stop it eventually from uh, becoming too pernicious so that we all have to uh, succumb to it. Emma Webb, commentator, talking to us there about an awful lot of common sense. Maybe somebody can come up with a word uh, for what common sense and the opposite of common sense actually is. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. It is, of course, time now, uh, after the news at 12.30, to do a little bit of homeschooling. Uh, people back to school this week after a bit of half-term action uh, where people were told that uh, they didn't really have to do any homework uh, to any great extent uh, or any home learning. Uh, March the 8th is a date we're told that kids are going back to school. Uh, we've got a post uh, out there on Twitter today. Will you agree to making your child wear a mask all day in school? Uh, a massive number of you, 88%, say absolutely not. Uh, that's nearly 5,000 people that have voted in that week which would suggest that the YouGov poll, which has the exact opposite um, result, uh, would appear to be um, not particularly correct, would it? Let's talk to Dr Laura Smith, presidential historian at Richmond, the American International University in London. Uh, Dr Laura, very good afternoon to you. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Not at all. Now, we occasionally go into areas where uh, perhaps other people don't go. Uh, Today, we're going to look at Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was the longest serving president of the United States ever. Apparently, he had four terms, which is sort of unheard of, isn't it? It, Absolutely. Uh, He's unprecedented uh, in terms of running for a third term while actually being elected for a third term. Uh, And it was really World War II that made that possible. Right. Right. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, you carry on. <laughs> yeah, so he uh, died during his fourth term. Uh, he died just after Yalta in 1945. Um, but he really set the stage for global uh, politics as we know it today. America is a superpower. And also uh, domestic politics and the role of the presidency and the federal government in our lives. Yes, because he's famous for the New Deal, which I guess we'll, we'll get onto in a little while. But I mean, it's hard to imagine, I suppose, having an election in the middle of a, of a war. But but I guess in 1940, America wasn't quite in the war, really. And by 1944, I suppose they were considering it to be near the end. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, um, I mean... In terms of elections during war, uh, 1864 and Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War takes the cake for that. Right. Um, but for FDR, um, he re- had a lot of foresight in thinking that America would almost inevitably become entangled and involved in World War II. Mm. And he had a lot of work to push against these isolationists that are so often forgotten when you think about American society today. Uh, but America first had a long history, uh, especially in the interwar years. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that's a phrase you hear a lot now, America first. But in fact, you don't really think of going back quite as far as that to find it. I mean, Britain was similar, wasn't it? There were quite a few people in this country who were not keen on getting involved uh, in a fight against Hitler. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Isolationism is not uh, just renowned in the States. It has it has a long global history. And mm. obviously, uh, these things are interconnected. And we know FDR and Churchill, we think of the special relationship. Um, and it's just those sort of cultural similarities and political ideologies that right. share a transatlantic partnership. And did he have the same vice president throughout the four terms or did that sort of chop and change? It did chop and change. So um, Truman, when he took over after FDR's death, uh, he didn't know about uh, the, the atomic weapons. He didn't know about uh, that that capability had been uh, built. And so he had to make that decision catching up on the top secret intelligence at the time. Right. Interesting. Tell us about the New Deal, because that kind of set the, the, the stage, really, did it not, for America's recovery from the war, not just the recovery from the war, but the whole kind of building of the infrastructure of the country? 
Yeah, it's still a matter of debate, really, just how much the New Deal helped in terms of economic recovery from the Great Depression, because a lot of scholars would argue that it was really World War II that had the greatest impact in recovery mm. um, for the economy. It was that industrial buildup, uh, the arms buildup, etc. But it was certainly a very different approach from Hoover, who uh, got kicked out of office right. uh, by FDR um, in 1932. And FDR had this optimism that really resonated with people. He got elected on this campaign of happy days are here again. Um, and it's sort of quite Reagan-esque, really, this great communication, this idea of coming into office, even though, uh, you know, there's an economic anxiety, great economic uh, pain being felt. Um, and he uses this 100 days, this momentum to get a lot of, of bills passed, um, including things that are relied on today. So it's going back to this idea of the role of the federal government in Americans' lives, having that safety net, uh, social security. Um, but he didn't get everything he wanted passed. And that's really important to remember as well. Things like healthcare, mm. it's still an issue in American politics. Um, it is it is still a very difficult, controversial thing, uh, this concept of universal health care. But it was something that he would have liked to have gotten past. Yes. And you mentioned he's a bit sort of Reagan-esque. Is that the, the president that you would maybe so uh, closely associate him with if you were to convince people that, you know, this is the kind of president he was? Was, was he was he like Reagan? Um, certainly not an ideology, <laughs> but in terms of communication, absolutely. Um, mm. If you think of presidents who are renowned as, obviously, we think of Reagan, the great communicator. Um, we also think of Kennedy. We also think of Barack Obama. Yeah. Um, these are presidents who, who really uh, have that gift and are able to use political rhetoric to a great advantage. OK. And there was an interesting sort of development, was there not? Um, because he had a disability which nobody really knew about. Absolutely. So. What's really interesting, if, if anyone has seen uh, The Post, the film The Post with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep, mm. uh, it really talks about this idea of the press being the president's friend. Yeah. And this changed during the Vietnam and definitely with Watergate. That was the real shift between the relationship between the president and the press. But during FDR's time, the press, obviously being around him, they knew that he was wheelchair bound. And there were photographs of him being helped or lifted out of a car. Um, but for purposes of morale, um, they decided not to share this with the American public. Um, and we think today about candidates having to share all of their details, uh, you know, medical history, traditionally speaking anyway, um, and taxes and things like that. So this was a very different relationship. Um, and he, yeah, he had been crippled by polio uh, at the age of 39. And he actually designed the wheelchair that he used himself. Mm. And he had a car that he could operate uh, by his hands um, and so it, it was all meant to make it look like he was a fully able-bodied man, not to have anyone um, question him or it hurt America's sort of image, if you like, if, if he looked enfeebled in any way. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? I read a great book once, I can't remember the name of it, by William Sapphire, who was once a speechwriter <laughs> for Nixon. Um, and he wrote this novel about a president who went blind while he was in office and all the measures that they took to try and prevent that from becoming known in public because he was thought that uh, if he was if he if they if they shared the fact that he was blind he would suddenly lose all of his authority and it's interesting that, that even i suppose now you see presidential debates around people's health and remember hillary clinton was was accused of not being very well by trump and you know it's a, it's it's i don't think there's any other country where that becomes such a big deal um yeah you you certainly uh, could make that argument um i mean wilson as well he wasn't very well 
Uh, he had a stroke. Mm. Uh, he was really sort of uh, incapacitated. And it was the first lady who took on quite a bit of the administration side. Right. Um, so, so yeah, there, there's certainly there. And of course, JFK, his back injury is yeah. another really good example. Um, but it's something that in today's uh, society with social media, I don't think you could really get away with. No, I think that's probably right. And was it after FDR's time in his fourth term that they limited it now to two terms only? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so that that's when the amendment was passed, that it had to be two terms. And that was based on tradition and the precedent originally set by George Washington. Right. A lot of people, if they're talking about Washington's greatness, they're all sort of hang that argument on the fact that he knew when to leave and sort of you know the graceful gentleman knows when to leave right yes i think uh, that could be leveled at one or two people in the modern age could it not great to talk to you dr laura smith thank you very much indeed presidential historian uh, at richmond the american international university in london fdr a, an amazing character a tremendous uh, president and an amazing historical figure for the united states of america in terms of what he did uh, and how long he did it for four terms at 16 years in the white house uh, also creating what is now known as the new deal of course talk radio across the uk Online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid morning with Mike Graham, Talk Radio.